Chicago. It's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. What's up, everyone? My name is Raj Nation, founder and chief pitch artist at Startup Hype Man, where we help startups not suck at how they pitch themselves. How? By making sure their audience sees them not as the best, but as the only. And this podcast is the only show where you will hear from leaders in the startup ecosystem sharing a piece of their heart, their mind, and their story on how they are charting their own path, growing their companies, and choosing not to play the game, but to change the game. Before we get going, hit the subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Also, head over to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to our Point of View letter, where we share original articles, insights, and resources all to help you become the only of your industry. All right, get your popcorn ready and get hyped. It's showtime. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from Detroit, Michigan. He is a venture capitalist and an author. Please welcome Gabe. Thank you. <laughs> pretty pretty flat response there. <laughs> yeah, I just it's hard to, you know, I don't want to bust into the, like, you know, a, a professional wrestling demeanor. <laughs> uh, but you know, I did my I did my stint with the WWE a few years back. We'll get into that story in a few minutes here. As I mentioned, he's Gabe Karp. He is an operating partner at Detroit Venture Partners. He's also a venture partner at LightBank. I mean, these are two of the most active investment firms in the Midwest and arguably the entire country. Um, And quick backstory, Gabe and I have known each other for several years now. We both used to work at the same company. Um, He was the general counsel at a company called ePrize. And we'll actually, we'll talk a little bit about ePrize later on. But um, he's also recently authored a book uh, called Don't Get Mad at Penguins, which is, you know, you see that title and you can't help, but there it is, right? Don't get mad at penguins. You can't, you see that title, you can't help but be like, huh, what? And what the, the book is all about is being able to embrace conflict. And so what we're going to talk about today is embracing conflict at the company level, as the founder, at the CEO level, embracing conflict to grow and scale. Gabe, once again, welcome. Why is this on your mind and why is this important to you? Uh, thanks for having me. Um, you know, ever since I I began my career as a litigator, so I was in court all the time dealing with a a lot of conflict. And, and then I moved from that after about a decade of that moved into the startup world, into business and kind of realized that the conflicts I was seeing in lawsuits, it was the same stuff playing out the same patterns over and over again in business and even in, in personal life. It's just anytime humans interact, um, that's that's uh, the, those those conflict patterns continually repeat. And I found that when I resisted that conflict, things generally went poorly. And when I embraced it, um, things went well. And, and looking backward, and I've validated this with every single person I've talked to, anytime. I felt there was personal growth or professional growth or something really good happened in business. It was always 100% of the time happening in the midst of conflict and embracing the conflict in a healthy way. And that is what fueled the progress and the growth. And I just, uh, once I kind of recognized that, I, it became my, my passion. So that's why, that's why I wrote the book. That's why I like talking about it. Um, and that's, I guess that's the, 
the shortest answer I can give to your question. And I'm excited to dive a whole lot more into this. I've had a chance to read the book. It's it's really is there's a lot of good stuff in there, and it, it's helped me think about things differently. Before we get into all that, let's learn more about Gabe, the person, the man, the myth, the legend, if you will. Uh, Gabe, I'm curious. So, growing up in the Detroit area, what do you feel like in, having an upbringing in that part of the country, in that part of the world? What what perspective do you think that's given you on the nature of human relationships? Um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to know what my perspective would be if I grew up elsewhere. Cause I didn't. Um, but oftentimes you hear, uh, people talk about the Midwest mentality, um, which is very different from the coasts in my experience and dealing with people who are born and bred on the coast there, there is a difference, not, not better or worse, just different. Um, and I guess, you know, growing up in Detroit, it was a tough city to in a in a tough metro Detroit area to grow up in, especially at the time I did, because it wasn't economic living. Certainly not in the way you know. There's been a big comeback recently, but there's just a toughness and grittiness to people in Detroit um, that I've experienced that's unlike elsewhere. Not to say that other people aren't tough, but there's just the, the grittiness is seems unique in Detroit. But also at the same time. There's a sense of community. So tough, gritty, we'll fight through anything, but at the same time, uh, a strong sense of community to lift up those around, um, those around you and, and help out. And th- those things kind of, con- they seem to uh, contrast, but that's just how it is. It works. There's a, it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting perspective. Yeah, it's funny. I was I was literally I had hosted an event an event yesterday and was having a similar conversation about this idea of like the Midwest versus the coastal mentality. And I, I feel like Midwest, which is funny that like Detroit and Michigan are considered part of the Midwest because it's like up and it's not it's not technically west. <laughs> it's like it's like north central actually. Um, but uh, you know what we were talking about was this idea in the Midwest that seems to really come through is like a, a very much a collaborative mindset in a lot of different ways. Like you could overhear someone talking about like a startup at Starbucks, for example, and want to be like genuinely curious about it and maybe be like, Hey, like I could help you with that thing, or you should meet so-and-so. Whereas I know in other parts, it's kind of like you could overhear someone and then you're listening for like devious or like insidious purposes. So you can text someone else, be like, oh, guess who I saw here? And they're talking about this thing, right? So I, I do, I, I do. Uh, I think I share in that idea of like the, um, the collaborative uh, and community type of mindset. Now, if we're, we're going to take a huge fast forward here and talk about your career itself, right? Like you spent time as a litigator. We spent time as coworkers. So just to, to recap that story for everyone listening, my first job out of college was at a software startup called ePrize. I think when I joined, it maybe was like past technical startup mode, but there was, I don't know, there was like 70 employees, and then, but we grew to like 200, I think, during my time. Um, Gabe was part of the management team that helped um, uh, enable the ultimate acquisition by a private equity company. Gabe was one of my favorite people to work with at the company. So he was the general counsel. And there were times where, you know, it was like contract stuff that would come up with a client that you'd be involved in. Uh, so I always appreciated calls that did involve you because <laughs> I knew. That I mean, they it's were rare. Gonna... It's rare that the legal guy is the is the uh, I know. Uh, the fun guy to work with. 
That's what I always said about working there. I was, you know, it was like you and Ira. And I was, I was like, I, I actually like when our lawyers get on the phone and get involved in these conversations because they're always valuable and helpful and fun. Uh, and yes, it is rare to say that. But um, one of the projects you got a chance to work on uh, that we kind of alluded to at the beginning before my time at the company, but to be honest, this was actually one of the things when I was interviewing that I saw ePrize did this. And I was like, oh, I want to work at that company. Um, ePrize did a promotional collaboration with the WWE, which everyone listening probably knows I have a lot of love and affinity for, um, you got a chance to essentially like manage and help run the process. I think backstage, right. For this giveaway of Mr. McMahon's million dollar giveaway. Um, now there's a whole lot that we can talk about within that story. What I'm specifically curious about is what was it like working literally side by side with Vince McMahon and pro wrestlers? Uh, it was amazing. It was it was very eye opening. Um, I not only was backstage, I was on stage during Monday Night Raw for three weeks in a row. Um, but that process began. Uh, it's such a big story. There's so many facets of the story, so I'll try to pick some parts. There was a press conference that they originally WWE said, "Hey, we want you know some executive in a suit from your company to come to this press conference to." Come play that role in the press conference. Yep. And that was, uh, that was, that was crazy. Um, I know it'll take too long to get into what ultimately happened at that press conference, but because of the way that I handled it, uh, Vince McMahon watching on a monitor backstage says, you know, all right, I want him at every show. And that's so his voice they, too, which is so funny. Yeah. <laughs> which by the way, his, his on-screen persona and off-screen, no difference. You know, a lot of times you think that, you know, no difference. And I, I guess I got to be careful because I don't want to talk out of school too much. But in when you watch these wrestling shows, when I was younger, there was just a ring in the center of the of the arena. Now there's a stage mm -hmm. that, that the wrestlers come out on the stage. They do some stuff there and then they make it their way through the crowd onto the into the ring for the for the actual match. Um, behind that stage is a control room. Yeah, it's basically the production room for the entire, uh, you know, the entire show. And because of our role, we needed to, I and, and two other people from East Price needed to be in this room. And the only place for me to sit was right next to Vince McMahon. He sits at a table and he's got like six monitors in front of him and he wears a headset. And, I, you know, literally like the, my leg, the side of my leg had to touch the side of his leg because it's so cramped. I got to watch him produce this show and I had no idea how involved he is with every nuance that, that happened, like that entire organization just, just comes out of his to tell It's a live scripted television show. And they're, you know, they're having to like feed lines or make sure people are staying on script, all those things. Yes. And, uh, and he's, he's able to deviate from the script when, you know, in a very seamless way. I was, I was like super impressed with that whole operation as a result of that experience. And, and uh, it was funny because I was on, I was on three nights in Monday Night Raw in three different cities, and it was so exciting to me to to be there. But I remember at one point my mom was was watching the show because her son's going to be on TV. She wants to watch. She's probably all excited. And at some point, she sends me a text and says, "How much longer do I have to watch this? <laughs> I, I, I haven't come out yet." And look, 
you know, she's, uh, she's, well, not, she's not the target demo. <laughs> yeah. She's not 83 year old, you know, woman, not, not necessarily target demo, but, uh, yeah, it was fun. Uh, that was well, that's great. Time. And I, it's funny. Cause I always think about like the Vince McMahon impression in, in this series. He's like, ah, oh, that Gabe Carp, he's such good shit. We got to put him <laughs> on TV. <laughs> And they love having, you know, it's funny because like you were an actual, you know, attorney and general counsel who's appearing on screen. And so many times what they're using is like a prop person who they put in a suit, who's a random like stagehand to play the role of like lawyer in a scene. But because of the nature of this, this campaign, it required or it benefited from having an actual attorney on stage. And what's funny is like for anyone listening, if you go to Gabe's LinkedIn profile, like the banner image at the top is Gabe at that press conference um, with the WWE um, uh, step and repeat banner behind him. But like if in the photo, John Cena is sitting at the table looking at Gabe at the podium speak. <laughs> Most of us watch John Cena. John Cena is watching Gabe in this instance, which I think right. is just one of the coolest like stories and life, life experiences to have. That was fun. I actually, at one point during that whole thing, someone actually asked me for an autograph. <laughs> and did you give it? Yeah, I gave, I gave it. And as I'm walking toward him, I'm like, do you even know who I am? And he says, yeah, you're Gabe. He said my name. It was crazy. <laughs> when you gave your autograph, was it your actual signature or did you do like a fake signature? I, you know, I was so flustered at the whole thing. I, I don't remember. I think I wrote some cheesy little, you know, hey, stay cool. I, I don't even know what I wrote, but I, I said something and then signed my name. And, and I, <laughs> I, I wish I could have given it at least a full second and a half of thought before doing it. But yeah. I was, um, I, I was in shock. I was shocked that someone was asking me for an autograph. Yeah. There's a lot going on in that moment. And then someone's right. like famous guy. <laughs> I, yeah. want, I want you to sign this for me. Yeah. So you've, you've, you've done a lot in your career. You have had a chance to do stuff like that at E-Prize. Again, you helped um, essentially negotiate and broker the acquisition of E-Prize by a private equity firm. Uh, you then got into venture capital and through all of these different life experiences, what you've been able to navigate, in some cases, it's been great. In other cases, you've, you've you know, had to deal with not so great people, is conflict in its different forms. So I think what's interesting is we hear the word conflict, right? And most of us think about how do we avoid conflict, right? How do we keep the peace? How do we make sure everyone's taken care of, et cetera? Why is it that, like, why do you think people do have that default mindset of, of like avoid conflict? It's a bad word. Yeah. Um, I think there are two big reasons, nature and nurture. Um, you know, for one, it's, we're socialized from a very young age to shy away from conflict, to avoid it. You know, we, we soften bad news. We sugarcoat feedback. Um, our parents taught us, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And that creates this mentality that, you know, okay, well, if I have a contrary opinion, I should keep it to myself because I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be impolite. Um, and, the, and by the way, that's not a bad lesson. It's a good thing to tell your kid, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Um, but I think that's misinterpreted and it's sort of ingrained into how we view the world in a way that causes us to avoid it. And on top of that, uh, there's the nature piece. So we have a billion years of evolution hard-coded into our DNA. Uh, and we have something called an amygdala. The small gland, we actually have two of them behind the brain, uh, behind the optic nerve on either side of the brain. And that's responsible for detecting threats 
and preparing the body for an emergency response. That's our flight or flight reflex. And when you are in the jungle or walking out of a cave and you see a saber-toothed tiger, that response will save your life. But when you are in a business interaction or in a meeting with someone, um, that's going to drive a really poor use of conflict. Uh, and there's there's lots of physiology in it. Uh, I go into more detail in the book, but you know when when the amygdala perceives a threat and kind of sounds the alarm, lots of things happen physiologically. We've got stress hormones flood into our into our body. We notice immediate changes like our breathing gets rapid and shallow. Or we get sweaty palms. Our heart starts pumping, um, and we lose access to the part of our brain that thinks and reasons and is able to balance things. So we kind of get in this frozen, like just instinct. Um, and it makes us do things that we later think, God, why did I do that? Or the, 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 I think the most resonating example is you ever been in an argument with someone and you think of the perfect thing to say, but only an hour and a half after it ended. Oh, all the time. Um, all the time. And, and the reason is that the neural pathways to your brain to access that perfect thing to say were shut down. You literally could not think of the thing uh, because access to it was blocked. Um, so, so you layer that on top of all this socialization. Yeah, it's no wonder people like want to avoid conflict and, and, and uh, not deal with it and push it away. It feels safer. So on that note, one of the topics you present in the book is different types or categories of conflict. And as you define it, there's healthy conflict, but there's also toxic conflict. So toxic conflict sounds a lot like what you were just getting at there, which is, and that's where people rush towards avoidance. But what, what is healthy conflict conversely? And how do we start to learn to move in that direction? Sure. Healthy conflict kind of harkens back to what I was saying before, that any time uh, people look back and see a period where they grew or they did something successful, it was was because of how they managed conflict. That's healthy conflict. I think healthy conflict in organizations propels the company forward. Um, It fuels growth. It fuels innovation. When people have different opinions, and those opinions come in conflict with each other, and there's a discussion about them, both sides learn more about the weaknesses of the and the strengths of the other person's opinion. That just make, puts everyone in a better position to make better informed decisions. Um, and you know that's where growth comes. It, it, it's, it allows, you know what? I, this person, because of this conflict, has exposed real flaws in how I'm thinking about this. So my thinking has evolved as a result of this conflict in ways it couldn't have evolved without it. Uh, that's healthy conflict. Toxic conflict um, is bad. It slows us down. It causes pain. Uh, it consumes an organization's energy, taxing its ability to grow, compete, and prosper. Um, when organizations with toxic conflict, team engagements are painful. Client relationships are strained. Individual careers suffer. Um, and the good news is, uh, in the same way that we go on a, a diet cleanse to rid the toxins from our body, the same with the toxins in our organizations and our minds. We can we can detox conflict. That was actually the original topic was either going to be the conflict cleanse or the or the uh, the conflict detox. Um, but don't get mad at penguins; it's so much better. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
you get a cute penguin on the cover, right? Detox conflict would have been like a cover with like a protein shake on it, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, and it's interesting you mentioned that, right? Because for me, you know, I think back to years ago when I was at ePrize, like there was a client in particular that uh, my team was working with who I feel like it was always toxic conflict because we had put ourselves in position to kind of just be like subservient to whatever they were saying. And we, what we didn't realize what really, they just had a certain style of communication. Right. And it wasn't necessarily, they were like demanding things or anything like that, but it was, it was the way they talked made it feel like these were demands that must happen and unreasonable expectations and things like that. And we felt too scared to actually like speak up and, and have a say of our own. And I think that's where a lot of, that's where it can be, it could be, it could actually be neutral, but we almost like make it toxic ourselves. Not even necessarily the other person made it toxic. It's that our perception of the situation and our inability to address it and just kind of hope, oh, it'll go away if we don't say anything, you know, makes it a worse relationship. I mean, maybe another way to characterize that is you felt bullied, even though, even though the other side probably was not intending to bully you. That was not their goal. Um, but and that and by the way, that is a very common pattern that plays out over and over again. There's a chapter on it in the book called the bully trap. Um, right. And and that's that's a source of a lot of conflict in, in business, particularly um, when uh, when there are agencies and clients in that relationship. That's that's very fertile ground for a bully trap. Well, and and. On that note, you know, let's take a hypothetical scenario here. Let's say I'm the CEO of a company. I mean, I am, but let's let's not say uh, in this scenario, I'm the CEO of a company, and we've got a customer who's, you know, they've been with us for like three, four years, and they they're responsible for like two million dollars of revenue every year. Right? They're a major customer on our roster, um, but now they they imply that they want to cancel, you know, when the contract renews. Given like what you know about how the amygdala responds and all this stuff, what's like my likely gut reaction going to that going to be if I'm not, you know, conflict prepared? And as a result of that reaction, that gut reaction, what like what's my likely course of action that I'll end up acting on? Right. So when you're faced with the prospect of losing a two million dollar account, fear is gonna is gonna probably be the first reaction. It's like What's two million bucks, and then and then it's very easy to spiral in. How are we going to make that up? You know, uh, I got to now think of all the bad things I have to do in order to deal with losing two million dollar a two million dollar account. Um, and a lot of times, panic sets in. People just get into defensive mode. Um, other times, that fear can turn to anger. Well, you know, screw them if they're going to get rid of us. And then that can drive, that anger can drive lots of behavior that's unproductive, in fact, destructive. Um, when you as a CEO feel the stress of, wow, I just took a $2 million hit to my, to my budget for the year, um, you're going to maybe take that out on your team. Maybe you're going to be angry with people on your team for putting you in that, place, in that situation in the first place. And then that causes you through, through your concern for how you're going to run the company, for your anger, for being put in that situation, for the frustration of not being able to do anything about it, um, you're just going to take it out on the team and you'll start bullying them. And lots of of toxic behavior 
flow from those toxins in that conflict. I want to take a step back for a moment. What we're talking about today is embracing conflict for growth and scale. Uh, a separate area where growth and scale really matters is your product strategy as a company, especially if you're trying to build an app or another type of software product. Um, perhaps you've already created it and it's launched. Awesome. Maybe what you're not looking at is that's just the beginning and there's a lot more ahead of you. In fact, if you weren't aware, about four in five apps get abandoned after a single use because why? They don't deliver what the users really want. So how do you improve your app to avoid that download and delete or use it once and then it goes back into the, you know, the iCloud and never to be used again? Well, fear not. What's going to help you a ton is having an experienced partner that can help you out with this quest. And that experienced partner is a company by the name of Mikito. They are a team of design, software development, and product strategy experts that have built over 150 successful products for startups and enterprises. So what that means is, if you're a startup today, they've got experience working with people just like you, but because they also work with enterprise, they have the lessons for what works at scale, and they can bring those lessons to you at the startup level. And perhaps yours could be next in a long line of success. So if you're looking for ways to scale up your product, you need to join forces with Mikito, and you can learn more. Talk to them at Mikito.com slash hype man. That's M-I-Q-U-I-D-O.com slash hype man. Mikito.com slash hype man. Today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we're talking with Gabe Karp, investor and author of the book, Don't Get Mad at Penguins, which is, again, one of my favorite book titles, I think, ever. What we're talking about is embracing conflict to grow and scale. Before the break there, Gabe was kind of explaining like how you can deal with a customer wanting to cancel and, and become aware of your emotions and to detox the conflict that can come in that situation. Um, you know, Whether it's that situation specifically or another one, what's probably going to end up happening is a meeting is going to be had, right? Because you're probably going to want to talk to that customer. You're, probably, you're not just going like, to do it through email if you're smart. Um, and so whether it's a customer wanting to cancel or even just like an internal meeting, I think one of the one of the most common ways conflict surfaces or perhaps doesn't surface in a case where it should is in the meetings that we have, especially if they're virtual meetings. Um, you know, we all I, my calendar right now is packed with meetings. And I, I think at the same time, like most of us can attest that the majority of the meetings we attend are actually unnecessary. Um, so I'm curious to get a, your opinion on just like meetings in general, but B, how does the presence or lack of presence of conflict in a meeting impact overall productivity? Sure. Uh, well, number one, it sounds like meetings on your calendar and you should just, you may want to- I'm working on it. I'm working on it. No, no, I'll that. Get rid of that. Um, so let's go back into, into the scenario you said. You've got a client who's going to cancel a $2 million account and the- the likelihood is they're doing that because your company has made mistakes, or maybe you're continuing to make ongoing mistakes. Um, and mistakes are inevitable. Like it's, we're human beings, we're the ones doing the work. Mistakes are inevitable. If you have a culture that is designed around flawless execution, that culture is inherently flawed because there will be mistakes. Um, one true test of character is how we react once we recognize that we've made a mistake. And if you have a culture of candor and accountability, then you'll embrace it. So let's jump into a meeting. 
and this is internal meetings, any other meetings, but let's use your, your client meeting as an example. If you go into that meeting and you tell the client, you're upset, you're thinking about terminating your agreement. We've looked into this and we realize we have made these mistakes. Ideally, you'll have identified the mistakes you made before the meeting. If you haven't, you need to draw those out of the, of the client, um, which isn't as good as knowing beforehand, but it's certainly way better than not doing it at all. And when you have a culture of candor and accountability, you seek out the candor to understand what has happened and the accountability piece kicks in. When you recognize you've made a mistake that has hurt the other client to the point where they want to cancel, the reaction is you step up. You do what's right to fix the situation. You seek out the conflict as an opportunity to demonstrate the character of your organization, the character of you as an individual. And that opportunity and seeing it as an opportunity is going to promote very healthy conflict. It's going to promote you drawing out from someone I got to believe I'm doing something wrong, or at a minimum, I got to believe there are things I could do that could be better for you. Please tell me what those are. Um, people feel uncomfortable telling you about calling out your mistakes, so they're not going to want to do it. So you got to draw that conflict out into the light of the day. And then once you do that and you embrace it and you hold yourself accountable and you make them feel good for bringing it up, they're encouraged to do it again. That, that really mitigates against this um, instinctive, evolutionary, shying away from conflict, as well as the socialization we felt growing up, um, people feel encouraged to speak their minds. The other side of accountability is avoidance, right? That's the other end of the spectrum. And one, that is one of the things you talk about in the book. Another trap we fall into is the avoidance trap. And a really good story that you share in the book that I, you know, I, I think I emailed you yesterday being like, Hey, I'd never actually heard it in like written out in like a first person experience story before. And it was, you know, going back to those days at E-Prize, it was before I had gotten there. And it, it was like the stuff of like legends, right? Like I had heard like, oh, the Pampers story from like nine different people, but it was all like bits and pieces and like, you know, tangential stuff that you're trying to capture. And what's interesting is it was legendary because of A, the mistake that happened, but then B how it was actually handled and how, you know, a couple of years later when I joined the company, Pampers was still a customer and one of the top customers at the company overall. So what I would love is if you can just share, you know, even, even briefly, like what was the issue that had happened and how was your team able to manage and address the conflict appropriately using a specific methodology in order to achieve a better end result? Sure. 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 So, uh, well, so, Pampers Gifts to Grow was a loyalty program that we were running for Pampers at the time. Buy Pampers, get a code on the pack, uh, take the code, deposit your account, get points, spend points on stuff. A loyalty program, you you get it. Yeah, um, yeah. So so or your your viewers get it. Um, so the the uh, program required that a unique code be printed on every single package of Pampers. These were fifteen character alphanumeric codes. I, it's good to have a visual aid, but just imagine imagine 15 numbers and letters all strung together in a, in a sequence, and that's a unique code. We wrote an algorithm that would randomly generate millions of these codes. And uh, when you, you know, if you think about it, there are only 26 letters in the alphabet and only 10 digits. So when you randomly generate millions of codes, you're going to randomly get some real words popping up in these codes. And sometimes they're nice words like love and cute 
LOL. Uh, and sometimes they're not so nice words like hate and die or ISIS or KKK. Um, so there's a, there's a best practice. Uh, you run codes through a profanity filter before you print them on, let's say, millions of product packages. Um, and without getting into the reasons why, in this particular case, we didn't do that. And uh, I'm sure your viewers can get a sense of where this story is going. So, <laughs> you know, imagine like a young mother who just bought diapers for her six week old daughter. And, and if any, like, if you've ever held like a six week old child, you know, it's one of the like purest, sweetest, most innocent things in the universe, just this bundle of love and joy and innocence. And, and the mother says, Oh, it's a, it's a loyalty program. Look at this. It's a code. And she starts typing in her code like JL five, nine Q. And then she comes across a four letter word that just like virtually jumps off the product packaging at her. And it wasn't one of the nice words. It was, it was a bad one. In fact, this is arguably the worst four-letter word in the English language. I would um, agree. I would agree. And if, I, I, if anyone's not, confused, not, it doesn't start with an F or an S, but it is a four-letter bad word. <laughs> yeah. Um, it starts with a C. So, <laughs> so uh, we got a call from, from the client at Pampers who was uh, very upset because they had gotten a call from this mother who was also very upset and basically telling them your loyalty program forced me to type this disgusting word into my account. I was actually, I had to actually, I couldn't just read it. I had to actually type it. Um, and uh, that was bad and they were very upset. And, uh, but we had a culture of candor accountability. That was a big thing that we lived and breathed. And this was the opportunity to, to see if, if we really wanted to live up to, the, to that ideal. Um, and, you know, look, I'm a lawyer, right? So by training, when stuff like that happens, what a lot of lawyers do is they launch into defensive mode and they say, well, our contract doesn't say anything about running codes through a profanity filter. You mean... You mean you have a profanity filter at Pampers and you didn't run those codes to them before you printed them on your products and sent them out to your customers? Yeah, sounds shifting like, blame, right? Yeah, sounds, sounds like you bear a great deal of responsibility here, but hey, we'll, we'll discuss a resolution. But that's just, that's not a good play. That's just a, you're already losing if you go there. Um, like I said before, when you are accountable, you step up and you say things like, we are so sorry, we we made this mistake. This is on us. This is our fault. And we're going to do whatever it takes to make it right. Uh, and we were lucky because most of the Pampers were still sitting on pallets in the warehouse waiting to be shipped out, but they'd already been packaged. Um, but we paid to have all that packaging broken down. Uh, everything was repackaged with codes printed on them that, that did go through a profanity filter. Uh, and at the end, the client was happy. And they said to us, they said, wow, you really screwed that up. But you know what? You stepped up. You protected our brand. And we know that if there's a mistake in the future, you've got our back. And we trust that you're getting. And, and if you think about it, our relationship was so much stronger for having made the mistake and fixed it than it ever could have been had we executed flawlessly in the first place. Yeah. And that's what I think is interesting, right? Like, the mistakes strengthen the relationship and what it seems like it took was a pretty good deal of like uh long-term thinking right you know not not being short-sighted about the situation really really thinking about what's at stake here like is this a relationship we care to, to uphold and keep having for years beyond this instance so 
Can you kind of talk through? Yeah, yeah. I, I, let me let, let's pause on that for a second because this is this is where the rubber really meets the road. We did not know that we were going to save the relationship. Our mentality at the time was we screwed up. We have to fix it. We hope, we hope we can, we're going to try like how to save the relationship, but we realize we may pay to break down all that packaging and deal with all this stuff. And they're still going to leave us because there were plenty of people, you know, look in that world, there are plenty of other competitors of ours just chomping at the bit, waiting to jump in, pounce at the moment they can. And we knew that was a risk. So our thinking wasn't really about how do we how do we kind of manage this situation to make sure we have a better relationship with them and we save the client? It was much more about we screwed up, we have to fix our mistake, um, we have to live that culture because internally here, we got to make sure that when we make internal mistakes, that each individual will take accountability for them. We have to be able to call them out to one another and we have to create an environment where that's accepted. So it was less about thinking long-term and more about this is just who we are. So that, I'm glad you clarified that because that, that so that actually changes my question because what it sounds like is it's a matter of having the integrity to just know what is the right thing to do in this situation, regardless, like, like you're not doing it as a form of a future leverage. You're doing it because you realize, Hey, this is the right thing to do to address this situation. Does that, does that sound right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like there are ways people can misuse this idea of like the embracing of conflict to use it as leverage, right? Like, like, like how, do, how, do you, how do you address some of these situations without becoming like a snake in the process, right? Right. I, I, I think the best, well, there are people who are snakes, period. And they're just going to put them in any situation. They're going to do whatever a snake does in that situation. And there are people who aren't snakes. That aside, there's a, there's a kind of a big area in between where people just aren't sure how to act. And I think the best filter to run it through is, what's my motivation here? Like, I now need to take action. What motivation is going to drive that action? Is it, is it the motivation of fear? I don't want to lose this client. I'll do whatever I can to like save the client. Well, a lot of times that can drive good behavior, but that same motivation can also drive bad behavior. Um, but if the motivation is... I believe that my company has to have a culture of candor and accountability, and there's no wiggle room in that. In all things, we must have candor and accountability. So in every moment, every opportunity, we have to live up to that ideal. If that's the motivation, that will also drive all the same behaviors that will drive fear of losing a client on the good side, and we'll avoid the, it will avoid the things that maybe snakes can do. Here's a, here's a simple way to put it. If you're doing something to try to manipulate the situation to get some kind of benefit, then you're, you're in dangerous territory. You're on, you're on thin ice. Like you, you might make it through in that one instance, but eventually that doesn't sustain. Catches up to you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I have a short list of people who I've encountered before who I'm like, I can see what you're trying to do here, you know, and because I, I think for perceptive people, it's easy to see through that. And yeah. not, not only am I not inclined to help them in that moment, but I also am not inclined to like make the introduction to whomever later on, if they're asking for it or, or, or do the favor at some point later on, if I feel like the motive is sour. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, there, there's, 
in those moments, you're, you're going to make mistakes. There's no question you're going to make mistakes. The question is, what do you do about it when you do it? And people might remember that you've made a mistake. They might even remember the details about the mistakes you made, but they most certainly will never, ever forget it if you step up and hold yourself accountable for the mistake. That is the lasting impression. So let's say you are selfish and are superficial and you do want to try to manipulate, at least, at least manipulate from that point um, to, to, to try to show people that you are honorable and that if you screw something up, um, you're going to make up for it. That means a lot. You know? It doesn't take money. It doesn't take an expensive education or raw talent. It simply takes integrity. And everyone has access to integrity. Uh, on that point, one of the company core values that I developed earlier this year, as we've started to build out our team, um, is actually built around this idea of like ownership over the work, ownership over mistakes. And I, you know, like one of the things I wrote in there as like a descriptor was like mistakes are fine. Acknowledge that it happened and figure out like what you want to do about it, like. Like I, I'd rather that happened. You figured it out and tell me what you want to do about it. Then a week later, I find out by chance that this thing happened and was never brought up. And part of it too is, just, you know, I also don't want to encourage a culture of like fear where you don't think you're allowed to, to do or, every, or everything has to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say it happened. It happens in just about every company I've been involved in, but it certainly happened when we were at E-Prize where, we, we made a mistake. We just realized we made a mistake. And we also realized the client doesn't even know about it yet. And the question always comes up, what do we do? So we could just ignore it and hopefully, you know, resolve it and it just goes away and they never know about it at all. Um, but more often than not, I think what we did is we took the approach of, all right, let's, let's understand this mistake. Let's like take, just take a moment to, let's not call the client up right away because they're going to ask us questions we're not going to have answers to. Let's immediately find out all the answers we can and mm -hmm. the options available to us to how we're going to fix this. Um, and, uh, and then as soon as possible, because call up the client. And, and the best case scenario is you call up the client and you say, we made a mistake. It's our fault. This is what we're going to do about it. And we want you to know. And that gives the client the opportunity to and this is always possible. Well, thank you for telling me, but your solution isn't good enough. I want you to do more. And you know what? That's the risk you run. Um, and sometimes that can lead to a really meaningful discussion. You know, if there's a good relationship there, you can debate with the client as to whether or not what, what they are asking for is too much. And if you've built a foundation of trust, you have, you've created space to have that conversation. Well, and I think what's important in that is more of that is centered on, I, ideally, more of that is centered on what's the best outcome, not who, who needs to be right here. Yep. But there are clients that um, will take advantage. Mm -hmm. They're going to say, oh, you did make a mistake. Um, I'm going to try to leverage this mistake to extract more value from you than, than is than is called for in this situation. Mm -hmm. But uh, but if that were to happen though, I feel like that's a product of how the relationship had been developed up to that point, most likely, right? Like 
if you if if they felt like there were other instances leading up to that where maybe on the service side, like you're not living up to your promises or you oh, yeah. enable a relationship where they can do whatever they want, then I think the table is set for them to take advantage in a situation like that. If they feel that they are owed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then that that's the time they're going to, they're going to get paid. Um, I got yeah. one more question I want to ask before we get to our wrap up uh, and a quick question, quick response. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book is like, the, how to give feedback. And what's interesting is I've always thought about like the feedback sandwich as a good way to give feedback. For those who don't know, it's like feedback sandwich, good feedback, bad feedback, good feedback. So you sandwich the bad feedback in between two pieces of good. So they walk away, not feeling like crap. Um, now the term you use for it in the book is a shit sandwich. <laughs> so talk to me about, about why that's actually not the best way to be giving feedback. So I would say, by the way, for people who are really uncomfortable giving feedback and don't have experience doing it, um, the, the, the feedback sandwich um, is a good thing to fall back on for those people. It's better than nothing. It's better than not giving the feedback. But I think that when you adopt a different perspective on the conflict and the goal of the feedback, um, you evolve beyond the shit sandwich, the feedback sandwich. So here's, here, let me just put some specifics to that. If someone's on my team and they are performing in a way they're, they're failing in some way, or, or there's an area I've identified where they could really improve. Um, and I have harsh feedback to give them feedback. They're not going to like hearing feedback that will sting. It will hurt them. They will emotionally be hurt when I give them the feedback. My natural defense mechanisms are going to try to get me to rationalize not giving them the feedback. I don't want to make them feel bad. I don't want to be impolite. I don't want to just have to deal with that discomfort of that conversation. Um, but I adopt a very different approach because people think, well, I don't want to be mean, so I'm not going to give that feedback. Well, I believe if you have information that's going to really help somebody improve and grow in their career and you withhold that feedback, that is an extremely cruel thing to do to another human being. That is mean. Telling someone something that they don't want to hear, but that will help them is helping someone. That's, that's a benefit. So when you adopt that mindset, that totally flips the script and you don't need the good, bad, good. You don't need to rely on those things. You realize you're doing this person a favor. And there are a couple tools, easy to use one-liners that I think set the stage to make it a much easier conversation. Because a lot of times it's like, I don't know how to begin that conversation. Um, here are a couple ways to begin. You could say to somebody, hey, look, um, if I were in your position, I'd want someone to tell me this. So right then and there mm. was the person thinking, well, okay, well, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> well, of course you want to hear it. Or it's like if someone begins by saying, listen, I think you're being perceived in a way that you don't want to be perceived. And I want to give you visibility of that to you so you can correct it. Because other people might think, you know, I don't know, you're a jerk or whatever it is, but I know you're not a jerk. I, I know that you're a great, amazing person. And I want you to be able to take advantage of this information so that everyone else can see all the benefits you're bringing to the table. Because right now they're not. Mm. And if you do this instead of that, or you don't do that instead of this, like those are things that will help you. Opening a conversation that way, get somebody of the mindset of, okay, I need to listen up here. Um, and this is going to help me. Cause again, like sometimes the stuff, the growth hurts 
you want to have, you want to work out and have a beach body. Um, you got to do some really painful workouts, you know, <laughs> but the result is you're going to look good if that's what you want, you know? Right. If So and apply that to any situation. Yeah. Let's begin our wrap up first, Gabe, where can our listeners find you? Where can they learn more? Where can they get the book? Uh, so the book, don't get mad at penguins available everywhere. Books are sold. Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. There's an, there's an audio book narrated by me. Morgan nice. Freeman was, Morgan Freeman was not available for that. Um, GabeCarp.com, G-A-B-E-K-A-R-P.com is uh, my website. GabeCarp.com slash book will give you everything, all the information you need on the book itself and links to all the different places you can buy it. Um, and yeah, check me out on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Uh, but GabeCart.com, that, that'll give you everything you need to know. And probably a lot more than you'd ever want to know. <laughs> Gabe, who is uh, one person you want to give a shout out to today who's been helpful to you in your career? Um, I would say, you know, I, I meant to give this more thought. Uh, I, I, you know... My mom was one of the was one of the test readers for my book, um, and I really want to thank her because she helped really expand the audience to the book. Um, I would write chapters and send them out to groups of people, and she gave me feedback. In some cases, like what you're saying here, I, it sounds good. It sounds like it makes a lot of sense. I don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand what you're talking about. Um, and get, she said, "I'm sure it makes sense, like in business, but." getting that kind of feedback from her and then going back to the, to the text of the book and changing it to sort of normalize it out, uh, make it just as applicable to business, but also to personal lives as well. I think it made the book a much more practical tool. Uh, and that would not have happened without, without my mom. So thanks mom. Shout out to mama carp. Yeah. Let's now give our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on the discussion today. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you. Topic today was embracing conflict to grow and scale. Uh, you know, amidst everything that we talked about, I think what I want to take away out of this conversation, especially what I want everyone else to take away is as you can start to feel conflict bubbling up, really go through that like you know, almost like mental exercise of mindfulness and awareness and, and like ask your, you know, it's like have the emotion and then be able to ask yourself, like, what is this emotion I'm having and why, why am I feeling this way? And then try to make your next decision based off of the acknowledgement of that first. Gabe, top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners. I would say in that moment to, to, to even put a finer point on it. When you feel the physiological effects of conflict, like the hair on the back of your neck stands up, your heart rate increases or your breathing increases, just stop. Like take just one breath. And that's all you need to pull you out of an instinctive response and into intellectual awareness. And that gives you power and control. And you can use that to diffuse the conflict, to detox it, and then, and then recognize, hey, this is a conflict. That's an opportunity for me to grow or make this relationship better or, or correct a mistake. Um, and when you have that mentality, you, you'll stick it out and embrace it. But in that fight or flight moment, just, just take one breath. It's really all you need. It'll disrupt that instinctive response. My final question, which is how we end every episode of this show, fill in the blank, Gabe entrepreneurship is 
blank. A way of life. Why do you say that? Uh, you know, found, I work a lot with, with startup founders and, and CEOs. Um, it's, it's not a nine to five job. It's a, it's a 24 seven job. And in my experience, you know, people come up with ideas and they get funded on those ideas. And more often than not, um, they'll hit a brick wall running hundred miles an hour with that idea. And they're going to need to pivot and change. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's a painful process and you need the passion to carry you through all of those things. So when I say it's a way of life, um, being an entrepreneur isn't what you do. It's who you are, because if it's not who you are, you're not going to be doing it for long. You know, entrepreneurship is a way of life. I love it. He is Gabe Karp, investor, author, Go out and get his book. It's called Don't Get Mad at Penguins, wherever books are sold. It's a great read. Um, and everything we talked about today is a further deep dive available in the book and so much more you can take away for growing and scaling your own company. Gabe, shout out to you. Thank you for coming on the show today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And for everyone listening, keep your eyes and ears open because coming soon is the Startup Hype Man mixtape, a hip hop album dedicated to the entrepreneur and the founder journey. It'll be available on Spotify, all the streaming platforms. Still working on it, but it is coming soon. So if you're not already, make sure you subscribe to our point of view letter at startuphypeman.com and you'll be the first to know. Take care, everybody. That's a wrap on this one. Shout out to our guest once again for sharing their story with us. If what you heard impacted you, do one of three things. One, let our guests know. Reach out to them directly. They love hearing from you. Two, leave a rating and review on Apple. Or three, simply hit the share button and share this episode with one friend who you think would benefit from hearing it. Catch our full episode archive at startuphypeman.com slash podcast. And if you want to make your pitch not suck, reach out to us through the website. That's all for this week. We'll catch you next time. Raj Nation out. Believe the hype.